how do you, you yourself deal with the idea that your wife, that you're sentenced to life in prison, you're gone for many, many years, she has a life outside, she meets other men, what, what, uh, it must be very difficult to, to, to think about that, that perhaps she, uh, you know, meets other men that she might like or might take your place temporarily, how, how did you deal with that? Well, uh, that was a question, you know, which uh, one had to wipe out of his mind. When I first met Mandela, I was single. When I arrived in South Africa at the beginning of the project, it took me a few weeks to get in to see Mandela. I was restless. I noticed that a new themed hotel, it was called the Palace of the Lost City, and was meant to be a newly rediscovered ancient African city, was opening in Bafutaswana, a so-called black homeland a two-hour drive from Johannesburg. Not only that, it was going to host the Miss World contest and have a sound and light show by Jean-Michel Jarre. I thought it would make a funny story. It did. When I arrived and went to the press office, I noticed a red-headed South African photographer. I then attended the event and went back to a post-show briefing at midnight. I introduced myself to that red-headed photographer, whose name was Mary Pfaff. It turns out that Mary had actually met Mandela before I had. She had photographed him on the day of his release. We started seeing each other, and our own relationship ran parallel to the book project. Mary became the only one I talked to about Mandela, other than the book's editor, Bill Phillips. A few weeks later, I reintroduced Mandela to her, and his face lit up. He remembered meeting her. Almost from that moment, he would ask about her and say, you must marry that girl. And then he would add, and move to South Africa. But despite his exhortation to me to marry, marriage was a sensitive subject for him. I knew it was something he didn't like talking about, but I knew it was an important subject for the book, especially his marriage to Winnie, especially Winnie herself. I knew this too because my editor asked me about it, a lot. It was important to explain how the man who would be the father of his country had such a difficult time as the father of his own family. Maybe that's why he was so reluctant to talk about it. Mandela would eventually be married three times and divorced twice. He had six children by his first two wives. His family life was difficult, and that's a gigantic euphemism. 27 years in jail can do that to you. But even before going to jail, his family life was problematic. He was more reluctant to talk about this than almost anything else. Everyone knew about his wife, Winnie. They were the original revolutionary power couple, the center of a kind of South African Camelot. But Mandela had been married before he met Winnie and the father of four children. I waited for months before asking him about his first wife, Evelyn. I wanted him to feel like he could trust me he saw that I didn't talk to any outsiders about our conversations. It was after about six months that I decided I would ask him about his family. Perhaps I should have teed it up better. It didn't go very well. So let's get to uh, 19... When, when you met Evelyn. Well, uh, I wouldn't like to go into that matter. You know, our people, 
resent us talking about uh, divorce, you know, and so on. Now, if I deal with Evelyn here, I will have to tell you why our marriage collapsed. Mm -hmm. Because our marriage really collapsed because of differences in politics. Right. And I don't want her to do that now against a poor woman, you know, mm -hmm. who can't write her own story mm -hmm. and uh, put her own point of view. Mm -hmm. Although she has been interviewed by people and uh, she has really distorted what uh, actually happened. But... Mm -hmm. The marriage broke down as a result of political differences. And once I start uh, dealing with her, I must give the, the proper story, the full story. Mm -hmm. I would like to leave that out. Hmm. As you heard, all I had to do was mention Evelyn's name, and he immediately brought up the divorce. I hadn't even planned on asking him about that until the end of our session. You see, it's sufficient for me to say that uh, uh, I met Evelyn in 1944. I fell in love with her and we got married. And we can discuss then, uh, you know, how the marriage broke down. And uh, then I, I am positive about the relationship mm -hmm. and to regret that the marriage broke down. Mm -hmm. But uh, to go into the questions of how we met, it's not something that... Uh, you know, will be accepted properly by our own people. Right. And that's what I'm concerned with. Right. Even today, I'm still not 100% sure of what he's saying here. Is he sensitive about how they met? Or is it the whole marriage he doesn't want to talk about? Or simply the fact that he was divorced? And while it is considerate of him to say that she had no means of getting her story out, she had already given many interviews about him, most of which were less than kind. Mandela believed talking about matters of the heart was a very American thing, and that South Africans, black South Africans, his constituency, wouldn't want to hear him bearing his soul about his love life and his marriages. Here are the facts. Mandela met Evelyn Massa in 1944. She was a cousin of Walter Sisulu's, and Walter introduced Mandela to her. She was also from the Transkei and was working in Johannesburg as a nurse. She was quiet and from a religious family and was four years younger than Mandela. After dating for a few months, Mandela proposed. After marrying, they moved to Soweto, the famous black township outside of Johannesburg. They lived in one of the thousands of three-room matchbox houses that had no electricity or indoor plumbing. Later that same year, their first son, Tembi, was born. But Mandela didn't want to talk about any of this with me. When Mandela didn't want to talk about something, he often told you exactly why. I'm worried about that. I would like to say things which will keep the organization together and not uh, to feel that in spite of what they wanted to promote around me, I ignore that, you see. Right. We don't go into those details. It's just, sudden, it's just uh, not like us, you know? When he says the organization... He means the ANC. When he says not like us, he means black South Africans. But I stuck with it. Right. And it's sufficient to explain why the marriage broke down. So you would, you would be more willing to have more detail about how the marriage broke down than about how you met. Yes, but even uh, how it broke down very briefly, you know. Yeah. That's not something we, we really encourage. Yeah. You know, such uh, 
personal matters of that nature. Right. But now, Our people are still very conservative. Right. And we must bear them in mind. When he says they are very conservative, I think he means black South Africans are religious and don't like divorce. Remember, not many people even knew Mandela had been married before Winnie. She was the famous wife, the mother of the nation. I also can't tell whether he is using the excuse that Evelyn can't defend herself as a way of not talking about her. Defend herself from what, exactly? He only has generous things to say about her. Yes, he's being humane about her inability to defend herself, but he's mostly thinking about one thing, elections. The upcoming election, the first democratic election in South Africa's history in which he would be running for president. It's not something that is really acceptable. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, I'm going to let you explain that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'll explain it to them if they raise yeah. it. Yes. And they will. Yes. They'll say, yeah, they'll, they'll say, why isn't there more material in this particular, this very important personal... Yes, if, if you look from the American angle, that's all right. But if you look at it, you say, from our own constituency, mm-hmm. it's not going to sound very well. Right. I'm afraid they would have to okay. accept that. Well, then that, then that will be... Um, no, you should just tell them that we had a debate on this question. And uh, however small my constituency, <laughs> it's very decisive to me, you see. <laughs> ah. Okay. Uh, well, I will be an advocate of your Good. point of view. But then yeah. Just tell them to phone me, you say, I'll speak to them. Okay. It's better to speak to them, you see, and uh, they must get uh, my own argument first and... I don't feel very courageous here. Instead of saying, look, Mediba, it's important to put this stuff in your autobiography, I blame the publisher instead, who wasn't there with us. But of course, I agreed with the publisher that we needed more personal stuff in the book. I too found it wasn't easy to argue with Nelson Mandela. In writing his autobiography, I was often conflicted. Conflicted between what I thought was important and would make a great book versus what Mandela wanted or didn't want to talk about. He subtly, and sometimes not so subtly, tried to win me over to his point of view. When he directly asks me to be guided by his views and the ANC, I wasn't able to say no, even though I knew it would be a better book to include more personal details. Was a book any book more important than democracy and racial justice? I don't think so. It's clear that as much as he wanted a good book, he wanted a book that didn't depart from the ANC line. And it wasn't even close. In some ways, I became a symbol of America to him. I remember once waiting for him to get on a helicopter, and I was wearing a suit and tie. When he walked over, he smiled at me and said, You look like a superpower. He was right that my American publisher wanted more detail about his marriages and his personal life. He saw this as a typically American approach. That is, more personal, more intimate, more sensational. He was allergic to anything that seemed romantic or sentimental. Okay, good. But we we have to have a few details, too, about... So you met Evelyn. You married her in 1944. She was a nurse... Yes. At City Deep Mind Hospital? No, no, no. She was a nurse at the General, the Johannesburg General Hospital. The Johannesburg General Hospital. 
And then uh, when we went to stay in City Deep ah. with her sister, then uh, she got a job there. That is what happened. Was she, she living with her brother in Orlando East when you met her? Yes, quite. Okay. Do you want to even say that she characterized her in any way to say she was quiet or she was sweet-natured or... Oh, no, no, that you can what you call it, that you can say. She was a well-behaved, uh, quiet lady mm-hmm. and uh, devoted to her family, her husband and children. Mm-hmm. Those things you can mention. Then I went a little too far. What was it about her that appealed to you when you first met her so much? No, that is... Uh, no. Let's not go into okay, that question. Right. Yes. I didn't know it at the time, but when Evelyn filed for a separation from Mandela in the native divorce court in May of 1956, she alleged that he had assaulted her on a number of occasions over the past 10 months. She made no charge of adultery, though it's pretty clear in retrospect that that was part of the rupture in their marriage. Her petition said he had hit her with his fists and choked her in an attempt to get her to leave. Mandela filed his own counter-petition several months later, denying her allegations completely and claiming that she had abandoned him and taken their daughter with her. He requested that the court give him custody of the children. Several hearings were arranged and postponed, and then in November... Evelyn withdrew her case without explanation. It was about a month before his arrest in the treason trial of 1956. In the 1950s, divorce in South Africa was granted on the fault principle. That is, whoever was at fault lost everything. The result was that both sides exaggerated their claims. I learned all of this years later and did not ask Mandela about any of it at the time. Perhaps the court history was one of the reasons he was reluctant to talk about his first marriage. I also learned that over the years, in conversations with friends and colleagues, he had always denied all of the charges. Again, he never said anything to me or in public that was negative about her, even though she said some pretty harsh things about him in public. I do recall him saying to me that as he became more and more political, she had become more and more religious. Eventually, she became a Seventh-day Adventist who went door-to-door proselytizing and handing out Bibles. He once said to me, as an aside, that while he educated millions of people around the world about the evils of apartheid, he had never successfully got the message through to Evelyn and his own mother. He said he regretted that, and I think he did. In January of 1958... After 14 years of marriage and four children, Mandela filed for divorce from Evelyn. As a newly single man in Johannesburg, he embraced his new lifestyle. As a young lawyer in the city in the 1950s, Mandela had become a man about town. He wore bespoke suits, drove an American car, had a pencil mustache, smoked cigarettes at parties. Every morning when he walked to his law office in downtown Johannesburg, People followed him down the street. And then, one day in 1958, he saw a woman at a bus stop. They said that you met Winnie when when she was with Oliver Tambo and Adelaide uh, at a delicatessen, and you went in to buy some food. No. I'll tell you what happened. I was driving from Orlando 
to drop a friend of mine at the medical school at Wits. And I was driving along. I saw this woman waiting for a bus, which was going to Paraguanath Hospital. And I just saw her, you know, I was struck by her beauty. And I passed, and then I forgot about her. Then uh, she came to see Oliver one day in the office uh, with her brothers. And I was introduced to her in the office. That's how I actually met her. Mandela was more eager to talk about meeting his second wife, Winnie, than he was about meeting his first wife. He even talked about what attracted him. And uh, I thought it was a quite a striking coincidence that a woman I saw as I was driving the car wa- waiting for the bus, I should next meet her in my office. Because when I passed her, I was struck, you know, by her beauty. And that is what attracted me. And then I met her in my office. I then phoned her and uh, made an appointment with her. And I took her out. You phoned her at the hospital? or you phoned her? At the hospital. Uh, I phoned her at the hospital. And uh, then I said I would come and pick her up where she stays, at the hostel where she stayed. And I then went and picked her up on a Sunday. And I took her to lunch, and, I, and then we went out. That's what happened. Mandela didn't exactly phone to ask her out. He phoned to say he was taking her out, and he took her out for Indian food. We went to a place called Azat, a, a restaurant, an Indian restaurant called Azat, A-Z-A-D. Of course, he spelled out the name of the restaurant for me. But he didn't have to spell out his feelings about Winnie. That was pretty clear. He also told me with a smile that Winnie had never had Indian food before and started perspiring at lunch. He seemed a little amused by that. Now, I remember one day when we were walking in the Transcot, and I asked you if, um, if you believed in love at first sight. And you said, uh, you said love at first sight comes in all different, in different forms. And you can fall in love at first sight and then not realize it for a year. Did you, was it love at first sight with, with uh, Winnie when you first saw her? Well, as I say, I was driving a car and I was struck by this woman, you know, her beauty and her figure, you know. It was just at a glance, you know, when I saw her and I I drove past. But uh, sufficiently for me to notice it. On that morning, when we were walking in the Transkai, way out in the felt with no one around, he turned to me and asked me whether I was married. I was surprised because he had almost never asked me a personal question before. I said I wasn't. But I told him then that I had recently met a South African photographer named Mary Pfaff, whom I cared a lot about. That's when I asked him about love at first sight. Then I said, how long do you have to know someone before you marry? He smiled and said, one day, one day is long enough. So then um, you started to take her out. You would see her quite frequently and what do you what, go out to meals? What, what sort of things did you do? No, I took her out. I didn't uh, propose that time, that day. You didn't? No, yeah. I just took her out. And then uh, I took her out a couple of times and then I proposed. 
just after a few times. Because again, the, the story that's been in, in the books is that, is that you never actually proposed to her. You just told her one day to go for a fitting to get a wedding dress. Oh, no. Nothing of this. Oh. No, I did propose. And what did she say? Oh, she agreed. I mean, that's uh, all. Had she known uh, of you before she met you that day? She must have. I think she did, because uh, she was at the John Hovner School. And I'd gone there a couple of times. I'd addressed them at the invitation of their principal. And then I adjudicated over debates between the school and some other team of debaters. So she must have seen me. So you, what year, what year were you divorced in? In 1957? Uh, 57, yes. Mandela and Evelyn's divorce was ongoing in 1957, but wasn't finalized until March 1958. Winnie was just 22 when they met. He was 40. So from the time you proposed, how soon was the wedding? Because you were married in June... 58. 58. Uh, and so you proposed when, do you think? Difficult. No, no, I don't know exactly when I actually proposed. It's a bit difficult. It's a bit difficult. I can't say exactly when I proposed. But it was after the divorce. Did you get down on one knee when you proposed? Oh, no. I wouldn't go into that, those details, you know? Okay. We don't, it's not really our approach. And then the movement also doesn't like it. I guess here I'm fulfilling his cliche of the nosy American once again. And as usual, he rebuffs anything that seems sentimental or romantic. Mandela didn't want to go into some details because he understood the power of symbols. And Nelson and Winnie together were a strong symbol. They were the original revolutionary power couple. Mandela and Winnie were married in Bizana, her hometown in the Transkei, in June of 1958. Her dress was made by Ray Harmel, who was the wife of one of his ANC colleagues. He seemed eager to talk about that wedding. What about, let's talk a little bit about, um, about the wedding, if you want to. You had, uh, you had to get um, four days' leave from your banning orders to go down to Ponderland. What do you remember about the, about the wedding that you'd like to talk about? At sunset, we drove to Winners Village, and uh, they gave us a place uh, to sleep. And then uh, the following day, there was the wedding. It was a simple wedding, nothing uh, very spectacular, country wedding. But uh, by the standards of the time, yes, it was uh, a good wedding. Uh. Winnie and the others had to do all of the planning for the wedding. Mandela was on trial and also winding down his law practice as he expected to go to prison. What about um, her father's benediction or his toast to you all where he says that it's, he says to her it's going to be quite difficult because you're marrying a man who's married to the struggle. What what did you think of that? Did you think that was wise? Oh, that was good, because uh, he was uh, very good because he says that uh, we have a tradition that uh, if you want to be happy with your in-laws, you must do what they do. 
if uh, they are witches, you must also become a witch. That's what he said. And he said that uh, this is a man who is married to the struggle, and uh, you must support him in that struggle. You must do what he's doing if your marriage is going to last. Her father had said to her at the wedding, if your man is a wizard, you must become a witch. Mandela was married to the struggle. And ultimately, for Mandela, that was the marriage that came first. In almost all the books and reporting about Mandela's marriage to Winnie, writers suggest that when he married her, she was naive and apolitical. She was, of course, just 22. But he seems very keen to rebut that. He always seemed to be in Winnie's corner when he talked about her. Because it was, it was during, the, um, during the trial, not that long after you were married, that um, she was... Uh, Arrested. Yeah. Yes. No, she was good. I was very much uh, impressed with her because she was uh, expecting. And she just said to me on the day of the opening of the campaign, in the evening, she said, uh, well, I'm going to join the other women. And that was the first time that she was was in jail also. Uh, Yes, yes. Now, as a result of that, she, didn't, she lost her job at, uh, at the hospital. Paragonath, yes. Yeah. That was a hardship, too. Absolutely. Absolutely. When I talked to the men who had been with Mandela in prison, they always talked about how he seemed invulnerable, except when it came to Winnie. Winnie was his kryptonite. I think it was especially hard for him as a man of a different and earlier generation, that he was not able to look after his wife. That she was on the outside, a young woman looking after their kids by herself. He felt he had failed her, failed as a husband and a father, and it made him vulnerable. I believe it was one time where a warder said something provocative or nasty about Winnie, and you got very angry, and I think you were charged. Can you talk about that? Yes, no, that's true. And uh, I won't go into details because uh, the water was rude. And uh, there was uh, a head of prison called Lieutenant Prince, P-R-I-N-S. And he said something uncomplimentary about winning. And of course, I was very annoyed. And uh, I lost my temper. And I told him a few regrettable things. And uh, they charged me for that. What did you say? Well, uh, I don't think that is printable. <laughs> Anything is printable I, I, now. I almost uh, beat the fellow up. In fact, I checked myself as I was going for him. But I then checked myself and uh, let out steam by uh, swearing at him. But uh, I think I use very strong language. Uh, I wouldn't like to go beyond that, because it was very bad. And and I threatened to beat him up. Uh If he repeated those words, I threatened to beat him up. And uh, he was shaken. And uh, so they then charged me. I'm pretty sure that's the only time I ever heard him say, I lost my temper. And it was certainly the only time he ever said he wanted to beat someone up. I never once heard him swear. 
Winnie's life was a turbulent one. She was subject to constant surveillance by the South African government. They have been harassing Comrade Winnie for yeah. the 27 years I've been Hi. away. He once said to me that he thought she had it worse than he did, that her relative freedom made the harassment more difficult to deal with compared to not having any freedom at all. And in fact, Winnie once spent 18 months in prison in solitary confinement. In all his 27 years, Mandela spent perhaps a week or two in solitary confinement. That was part of why he says he wrote such passionate letters to her from Robben Island. Here's a letter Mandela wrote from jail dated April 15, 1976. My dearest Winnie, your beautiful photo still stands about two feet above my left shoulder as I write this note. I dust it carefully every morning, for to do so gives me the pleasant feeling that I'm caressing you as in the old days. I even touch your nose with mine to recapture the electric current that used to flush through my blood whenever I did so. I did ask him about that letter. Well, uh, you know, I was thinking of her, of course, every day. And uh, also I wanted uh, to give her encouragement to know that there is somebody somewhere who cares for her. Yes. Uh, well, that, that was obvious. That's obvious from the letters. How do you, you yourself deal with the idea that your wife, that you're sentenced to life in prison, you're gone for many, many years, she has a life outside, she meets other men. What, what uh, it must be very difficult to... To, to think about that, that perhaps she, uh, you know, meets other men that she might like or might take your place temporarily. How, how did you deal with that? Well, uh, that was a question, you know, which uh, one had to wipe out of his mind. Mm-hmm. You must remember I was underground for almost two years before I went to jail. I took a deliberate decision to go underground. And uh, in other words, uh, what uh, those issues were not material issues to me. And then one had to accept the human issue, the human fact, the reality, that uh, a person uh, will uh, have t- times when he wants to relax and uh, one must not uh, be inquisitive. It's sufficient that this is a woman who's loyal to me, who supports me, and who comes to visit me, who writes to me. That's sufficient. And then everything else, you that's sufficient, and you put the other things out of your mind. Oh, yes. Because they're not important. Yes. And it doesn't alter her relationship to you. No. relationship to her. This is classic Mandela. Rational, reasonable, thoughtful. He had a lot of time to think about this in prison. And as with so much of his personal life, he had a set response to my questions. But Winnie didn't stick with the plan. When Mandela went to prison, Winnie became an international symbol of the freedom struggle. She became known as the mother of the nation. She was both a stand-in for him and a genuine and courageous freedom fighter in her own right. But by the 1980s, Winnie had become a controversial figure. As the struggle grew more violent, she publicly endorsed the policy of necklacing, that is, killing people by putting burning tires around the necks of those who were regarded as traitors or spies. In a fiery speech in 1986, she had said, with our boxes of matches and our necklaces, we shall liberate this country. She was the more militant Mandela. 
Winnie surrounded herself with young male bodyguards who called themselves Mandela United. It was a dark and violent time in South Africa. In 1989, a teenaged male activist named Stompy Sipai from the Free State was kidnapped and found beaten and dead in Winnie's house in Soweto. In 1991, she went on trial and was convicted of kidnapping the young man and being an accessory to his assault. Later that year, Mandela was released from prison and she was dutifully at his side giving the clenched fist power salute. That image was on the front page of every newspaper in the world. What you should know is that the conversation we're having took place in March of 1993. That's just a few months after his emotional public separation from Winnie. Or, as he referred to her at the press conference, Comrade Namzamo. My love for her remains undiminished. However, in view of the tensions that have arisen owing to differences between ourselves in a number of issues in recent months, we have mutually agreed that a separation would be best for each one of us. I hope you'll appreciate the pain I have gone through. And I now end this interview. I hope you will appreciate the pain I have gone through. That might be the only time in his long life that Mandela ever showed even a hint of self-pity. My question about infidelity was an attempt to get him to talk about something that was extremely delicate and painful to him. That is the fact that Comrade Namzamo had kept seeing her considerably younger boyfriend even after Mandela emerged from prison. To Mandela, that was a violation of the understanding that he had talked about. And I think it hurt him deeply. It's one thing for her to be able to relax while he is in prison. It's another thing to do it once he came out. That was hard on him. And it wasn't good optics for South Africa's first family. Mandela and Winnie were divorced in 1996. In his official filing for divorce, he cited infidelity. In 1998, a report by the South African Truth and Reconciliation Committee found that Winnie had been guilty of gross violations of human rights. For nearly three decades, with her husband behind bars, Winnie had been the mother to a nation. But it was difficult for her to be a mother to her own family. In the end, like Nelson, she too had sacrificed her life and family to the struggle. She was a martyr to the cause both she and Nelson believed in. He never just calls her Winnie at that press conference. It's always Comrade Namzamo. Namzamo was Winnie's cousin name. It literally means she who tries. And that's how he saw her. <laughs> 